Now, I want to start by telling you about a, a pretty scary moment. Uh, in fact, I would say it's probably one of the scariest moments of my whole entire life. And I was exhausted. I was absolutely tired out. I, I was pretty burned out, actually. I'd been working hard for a long period of time. I'd been carrying responsibilities on my shoulders and uh, struggling to process things that had been happening. And a few things in a row had gone not my way. And I was walking down the street one day and I was trying to pray. And do you know sometimes when you try to pray and you can't really pray, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to ask for, you just know things are pretty hard right now, things are hurting inside right now. And I, I realised that I couldn't see the future anymore. And uh, what I mean by seeing the future is not like um, I know what's going to happen, but the way I operate, the sort of person I am, I love to think about the future. I love to think about, hey, wouldn't it be great if, hey, let's do this. This could be the next thing. I want to do that. Actually, that's a big contrast to my wife. Emma's always talking about the past, reminiscing, going on uh, memories of days gone, but I, I'm a future person. I realised this day as I was praying, I can't see it. I don't have anything that I'm dreaming of. I don't have anything that I want anymore. I mean, that's a scary place to be. And on, on that day, I realised that somehow I'd become disconnected from hope. I didn't feel like I had hope anymore. I was even wondering, like, is this how it would feel at the end of life, when the race is run, when there's nothing more to look for? And I, I needed then, over a period of time, to, to work that through, to talk to other people. Hey, I've hit this point to pray into it. Can you resonate with that? Have you ever felt something like that? Have you ever hit a point that hope has been a struggle for you. Maybe this morning, you're here and you feel like, I just don't feel like I've got any hope anymore. I just, I'm not excited about anything. I can't see what is to come. Hey, I've got a message for you this morning. It's a message that I needed to hear on this day that I'm telling you about. And I reckon some of you might need to hear it this morning. Here it is. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. That's the message this morning. And everything else I'm going to say is going to be elaborating that idea. The big idea this morning, there really is hope. We've been looking at this story uh, of Ruth. Uh, well, we've actually been looking at two stories, Ruth's story and Gideon's story intertwined together. But today we're looking at Ruth. And Ruth's story is a story right on the edge of society, right in the margins. Ruth was actually out in Moab. That was a place where people didn't really want to go. There was a bad reputation about going to Moab. It was outside the land of God's promise and God's provision and God's presence and God's people. But what happened is this family had moved out there, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons. and There'd been a bit of a food shortage in Bethlehem. And they'd heard that there was some food in Moab, so they relocated and they went there. And I'm sure they went full of hope, full of dreams, full of excitement about what life could be. But it didn't turn out well for them there. Elimelech, he died in Moab. Marlon and Chilion, the two boys, they both got married 
in Moab. Neither of them were able to have kids. And then they both died as well. So who's left? You've got Naomi and you've got her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Their situation is absolutely desperate because in that society, in that day, what could they do? As, as women, as widows in that place, they couldn't go out and get jobs. They couldn't claim benefits. They were on their own with no money, no food. What did they have to resort to? Begging, maybe? Well, Naomi thinks, you know what, this has hit rock bottom. And she, she's bitter about it. She's crying out, God, you've dealt with me really harshly here. Don't call me Naomi. My new name is Bitterness. That's all that I've got left. And she said, I'm, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. And she encourages these two daughters-in-law, Oprah and Ruth. Hey, why don't you go back to your family home? Why don't you go where your parents are there, where your siblings are there, where your aunts and uncles are there? And there'll be a home for you and there'll be a place that you belong. You'll be part of a family. You'll get food there. You'll be provided for in the family home. And so Orpah, she does. She takes Naomi's advice. She goes back to her family home. Ruth doesn't do that, though. Ruth decides, no, Naomi, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to make a promise to you that I'll bind myself to you. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'm sticking with you, Naomi. So Ruth and Naomi, they end up back in Bethlehem. And they're able to kind of eke out a living. There was like a law there that um, people who were harvesting the fields had to leave a little bit by the edges so that those who had nothing could go and at least collect enough grain to eat. Ruth availed herself of this. She went and she was collecting this grain day by day. They were just about getting by. But life was still hard. Life was still insecure. And for Naomi, there's still no hope because her family name, which was kind of the be all and end all in that society, was coming to an end. Her sons had died. There was no heir. That, That family would just be blotted out. It was just eking out her life to the end and then game over for her. What hope is there for Naomi? We've got another story intertwined around it, the story of Ruth. Now Ruth, as she's gleaning in the field, she catches the eye of the person who owns the field. So Boaz has noticed, hey, there's this person on her own. Let's make sure she's all right. Let's make sure she's safe. Let's make sure she's well provided for. And then uh, the the story blossoms and develops and they realise that Boaz is a relative and uh, that, that's pretty important because he's in a Limelech family and there were some laws around people in the family of the deceased uh, redeeming those who were left and so Ruth has ended up and we heard Hannah talking about this a couple of weeks ago she's ended up basically proposing marriage to Boaz so she went to to lie at the bottom of his bed while he was asleep and um And then when he wakes up, she says, I want you to uh, put your garment over me. And that's a symbol of make a covenant with me. Make a promise with me like the promise that I've made to Naomi. Bind yourself to me. Marry me, essentially, is what she's saying. Now, the law that I refer to, is called the Kinsman Redeemer Law. I just want to uh, share with you the verses from uh, the law about it, because it's really important to our story and it was about two things one of which was land so it's about making sure that the land that has to be sold can stay in the family and secondly it's about the family name making sure that that family name can go on there can be a legacy there can be an inheritance among the people 
So around the land, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25, says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So someone has to sell the land. It's on the nearest family member. You buy it. You can work it as your land. And then eventually there'll come this big day of jubilee when the land's returned to the original family. But keep it close in the family for now. And then around the family name, this is uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So that was the second thing. The closest relative should provide the heir who could carry on the family name for the one who is deceased. So they're all getting really excited because they realise, hey, Boaz is this. Boaz is the redeemer. Boaz is the man in Elimelech's family. He can do this. He can buy back the land. He can marry Ruth. He can provide the heir according to the line. But in a passage we heard last time, there's a little bit of a, a snag. There's a problem in the story. Chapter 3, verse 12. Boaz says, now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. He's saying, there's another guy. You know, it's always the way in these kind of stories, isn't it? It's all set up, this kind of chick flick love story. There's another guy. That's always the problem. There's another guy. Boaz is second in line. He doesn't have the responsibility, first and foremost, on him. Someone else has this responsibility given by God in the law to redeem Ruth, to redeem Naomi, to carry on the family name, to buy back the field. Now, I think this would be a pretty shoddy story if the way it panned out was they went to the other guy and he was like, all right, cool, I'll do it. And then that was the end of the story. The, the way the story's been told, we, we know that's not going to happen. But let's read. Let's read from chapter four, today's passage, and see what happens. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Now, the gate, basically, that was the place where business was done and commerce. It was uh, the, the kind of centre for the leaders of society to go. Boaz has gone there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Let's have the conversation. Let's square this out. Let's talk it through. That's, that's what you need to do sometimes. There's an issue in the air. Just get the conversation out on the table. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there's no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, 
I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Here's the crux of the story. Here's the big question that we're asking today. Who will step up and play the role of the redeemer? Who's it going to be? We'll come on to the two candidates in a minute, but let's just talk about this word redemption, redeem, redeemer, and make sure we understand exactly what we're talking about. Jason Georges says the biblical term denotes release from bondage. That's what redemption is about, release from bondage. And I've got a little illustration of it that hopefully will help you get the idea. I don't know if any of you back in the day watched the TV show, The Crystal Maze. It was one of my favourite shows as a kid. Now, if you didn't watch it, basically you had a team of people who'd go round and there were different rooms. And in each room there was a challenge. And the team could nominate a person to go and take that challenge on. They had two minutes or three minutes, depending on the challenge, to to do whatever the activity was. And if they were successful, they got this crystal. And then they could go back to their team. The team would try to collect as many crystals as possible. The more crystals they got, the more time they got to do the final challenge. So that was the whole purpose of the game. Now, when you were in one of these rooms, if you didn't manage to do it in time, you could either leave the room before you'd completed it. But if you were so engrossed in the challenge and you didn't get out in time, or if you triggered certain traps in some of the rooms, then the door locked. You were locked in that room. You couldn't get out. You couldn't rejoin your team. Now, the team, to complete the final challenge, needed as many people as as they could get. So ideally, they'd want this person back who was locked in the room. And the way they could get them back, they had to give up one of the crystals to buy the person out of the room that they'd been locked into. And what they're doing when they give up the crystal to release this person from captivity, that's redemption. That's what we're talking about. You redeem someone because they've paid a price to give freedom to someone who's in captivity. That's the metaphor that we're using here. Now, when we're talking about somebody in bondage or in captivity, we shouldn't narrow it only to thinking physically in bondage. It's not only people on the crystal maze or people in slavery or people in prison or people who've been kidnapped or whatever other form of physical bondage you might think of. The Bible talks a lot about people in spiritual bondage. We're slaves to sin. We need redeeming from our old ways. Or you can think of social bondage, people who are outcasts, people whose position in society they have no way of escaping from, people who are marginalised. That's another form of bondage. And there are three ways that redemption can happen biblically. Again, we're talking about what Jason George has unpacked here. He said one of them is money. So you can redeem someone by paying a price. He says a person of material resources could redeem someone or something by simply paying money to acquire ownership rights. Leviticus 25 explains the process by which Israelites could redeem family real estate or enslaved family members. That's the the verse I read out a little bit ago. Boaz paid money to redeem Naomi's land and restore it to her descendants. So that's one way you can do redemption. A second way, though, it's not only money, that's not your only option, Secondly, you can do it by 
force. You can redeem through power. Through sheer power, a person could redeem another from an undesirable state. This is how Yahweh redeemed Israel from slavery or bondage in Egypt. God didn't pay Pharaoh for Israel. He claimed them from slavery with his mighty hand. So you can redeem by paying a price. You can redeem by an act of power. Or, thirdly, you can redeem through a relationship. When a, person, when a powerful person voluntarily associates with someone lowly, that person is released from social shame and vulnerability. Marriage and adoption are common forms of this. The leveret marriage, where a kinsman redeemer marries a brother's widow, is a common framework of biblical redemption. So you can redeem through relating to someone who's lowly, who's ostracised, who's on the edge of society. Why am I telling you this? Why am I sharing all these different ways of redemption? Well, I think what we tend to do when we talk about it in church is we default to the first one. We always define redemption as bringing freedom by paying a price. And that's definitely an aspect of it. But when we do that, and when we have such a narrow construct of it, I think we find it hard then to relate to it in terms of how we live, in terms of living our lives in a redemptive way. Because if I think, okay, what opportunities do I have to, to bring liberty to people by paying a price, it's hard to think of any. Maybe I could give some money to a charity working with modern-day slavery or something like that. But the opportunities for me to pay a price to liberate are quite few and far between in my life. But do we think about how we use the power that we have, how we use the position we have, how we use, you could say, the privilege that we have, how we use the opportunities before us to bring deliverance to those who are in captive. I, I know it's just a truth that there are some things that if somebody in my position who looks like me says them, they land differently to people from different backgrounds or different positions or who look differently. I just know that's the truth of how society is. So if I'm not going to use my position and power to say things that need saying, then who is? What position do you have? What power do you have? And how can you use that to bring liberty to those in bondage? And also, that, what about relationships? How can we relate to other people? How can we, like Jesus, would go to the edges of society, to the lepers, to the sinners, the tax collectors, the outcasts? And he chose, through his relationship, he was associating with their shame, but he was drawing them into his honour. How can we use our relationships to honour and draw people in who have been marginalised and ostracised. So we've got these two candidates to be the redeemer. One of them is Boaz, the other one, his name isn't even mentioned in the story. Let's talk about the other guy first. What is he interested in? Because he seems, in the first bit of what I read, it seemed like he was well up for it, didn't he? He seems like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm in, because he'd heard about the field. And the field was a good deal for him because he gets, when he gets his field, he gets to harvest his crops, he gets to sell them, he gets to make money. He'll be in profit if he buys this field. It's like, hey, this is a good opportunity. I'm totally in for this redeemer malarkey. But as soon as he hears about Ruth, and isn't it clever how Bowers says, oh yeah, by the way, there's also kind of Ruth the Moabite. Like he, he's selling this to the guy, isn't he? 
But the, the guy's, oh, oh, no, actually, I'm not so interested anymore. You see, it wasn't really about redemption for him at all, was it? He didn't have this heart to be a redeemer. He just wanted to make a bit of money. That, that's what was going on. And when, when the deal suddenly turned from profitable to sacrificial, when it became costly for him, he was out. Now, Boaz, on the other hand, we know Boaz was a bit of a rarity at the time because this book was set in the days of the judges. And, you know, if you read the book of Judges, you'll see it was a brutal time. It was like the Wild West. There was no king. Everyone did what was good in his own eyes. Not many people were living out God's law with all their heart. But Boaz was. And what Boaz wanted wasn't just a field to make some money out of. It was a genuine, sacrificial, covenant love for Ruth. He truly wanted to be a redeemer. Like Ruth had truly wanted to make covenant with Naomi. So Boaz wants to make covenant with Ruth. And actually in the same way, the Lord making covenant with his people. And, And there's a word for this. This kind of love, this covenant love... The Hebrew word is hesed, and it doesn't neatly translate into a specific English word. But here's how Sarah Bowler describes it. She says, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word most often used to describe this sacrificial love is hesed love, often translated as kindness or loyal love. When it's used to describe God, hesed love is often used as a covenant term showing the relationship between God and his people. It depicts God's loving, merciful, gracious, kind, good, and benevolent ways. And this is the same kind of love that Boaz showed in contrast to the other redeemer. This series that we've done, God's Stories from the Margins, I think it's a call to two things. It's a call to hope. That wherever we're at, however burned out we are, however far away we seem, however overlooked and ignored we may be, that God's still interested. That God has hope for us. God has a story for us. It's a call to hope. And also it's a call to hesed. It's a call to look around. It's a call to notice the people who no one else is noticing. It's a call to show this sacrificial, costly, covenant love. The contrast between Boaz and the other redeemer poses a challenge for us, doesn't it? Do we still obey God when it's hard? When it's no longer for our own profit, when it's sacrificial, when it's costly, when it means giving of ourselves to someone else? Are we still in? Or are we like that other redeemer who, who says yes when it seems good for a little earner, but no when things are demanded of us? Hope comes through a redeemer and hope shines through even in the darkest of moments you know the darkest part of our story isn't the end of the story that's the good news of God isn't it the darkest moments those kind of hitting rock bottom that's not the end God has hope God has future I want to talk a little bit about Naomi's story just think about the position that Naomi was in she had lost her husband She'd lost both of her sons. She'd lost any prospect of grandkids because we knew that Ruth and Orpah were both barren as well. So widowed and barren. This kind of prospect of Naomi's family line and legacy and lineage going on was zilch. It was zero. Her people would be extinguished from 
Israel when she died and she knew this and not only that she was kind of just getting by hand to mouth day by day she looked back at maybe the mistakes that she regretted going to Moab in the first place and how everything had messed up I wonder when she was crying out don't call me Naomi call me bitter I wonder if she felt just a little bit like I did in that story I told you at the start just this sense of I can't see anything coming up. I can't see any future. I can't see any hope. I feel totally disconnected from the idea that there is good to come. It's a dark moment, isn't it, for Naomi? I want to jump to verse 13 and pick up the story there. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The women of the neighbourhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. When she hit rock bottom, Naomi needed nothing short of a miracle. That's what she needed. It wasn't something that she could just conjure up. It wasn't something that anyone expected would happen. She needed a miracle. She needed a divine intervention to turn her circumstances around. Christians, we need to be comfortable sitting in the place where all we've got to hope for is God to come through. You know, I've got a friend who, uh, one time he he was stopped by a couple of muggers who uh, asked him to empty his pockets. They took his wallet They took his phone. Uh, He could see one of them had a knife. He he was terrified. And and he was praying in this moment, God, please help me. I don't know what to do. Would you help me in this circumstance? And as he was emptying his pockets, they saw he emptied out of his coat pocket a Bible. Uh, And one of them turned to his mates and was like, Aye, aye, brav, aye, brav, it's a Bible. We don't want to mess with God, do we, brav? Give him his Bible back. Give him his phone back. Give him his wallet back and he gave him all of his stuff back. Amazing, isn't it, though? He had no hope. There's nothing he could do. And he cried out to God. And in that moment, God came through. Oh, think about what we're doing as a church. We want to start something new in Munich. And it was absolutely mad because it's like, hey, let's, let's plant something in Munich. And it's like, okay, who do we know in Munich? No one really. Uh, What's the plan? We don't have one. And so there's that crying out to God, God, we need a miracle. Only you can do this. But it was awesome. I was on a prayer meeting for Munich this week. And one of the guys on there, a Ukrainian guy, Pastor Yvonne, was like, hey, I was in in Munich. And uh, I was walking around and I I made contact with uh, this church who's looking to do kind of an international service and was thinking maybe we could help them with that. And then there was this Russian-speaking congregation who uh, want some help and people to go in there. And there's an opportunity to start something from scratch. Uh, We we just need to decide which of these three plans we go with. And it's like, wow, okay, we didn't have a plan. 
plan. We called out to God and now opportunities are arising. God will answer that prayer of we've got nothing, God, but we need you. God answers those kind of prayers. I think we need to be comfortable being in that place where our only hope is a miracle. Because if you're in that place, let me tell you this, you've come to the right God. Miracles are his thing. That's what he's about. That's what he does. We have a God of miracles. Jackie Pullinger says, I banked my life on a miracle. So what is Naomi's miracle? Well, in verse 14, it talks about how the Lord has not left you this day without a redeemer. God provides a redeemer for Naomi. Who is that redeemer? It's not Boaz. Because we're told in verse 15 that Ruth has given birth to the Redeemer. It's baby Obed. Baby Obed is Naomi's Redeemer. And you see in verse 17, all the women are gathered around. Naomi said a son has been given to Naomi. It's like they see that in this baby, in this Redeemer, that Naomi's fortunes have turned. It's a public recognition now that she's switched from a shamed status at the margins to an honoured status in the core of society. She's been given her reputation back. She's been given her family name back. And we're told that this was very directly a work of God. Did you notice in verse 13, it says, and the Lord gave her conception. We learned earlier that she was barren. Now we're learning that God has given conception. And did you know there's only one other verse in the whole book of Ruth where it talks about God actively doing something? And that was chapter 1, verse 6, when God brought the harvests and brought food to this place there was famine. There was famine and God intervened and there was food. There was barrenness and God intervened and there was conception. God has brought a miracle. That's what Naomi needed. And that's what God provided. Listen, don't be fooled into thinking that God is dead. Don't be fooled into thinking that God cannot work in your situation. Don't be fooled into thinking that there is no hope. Because there is hope. Because there is God. He's alive and he's active. He's the God of the breakthrough, isn't he? I love that song that we sing here, often written by Sinak. And uh, the words that she wrote are just incredible as a declaration. You are the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. This morning, if you're feeling like life is bleak, if you're feeling there's a darkness over you, if you can't connect with hope, there's a God who is the light in that darkness, who keeps his promises, who makes a way, who works miracles. And you know, the hope that was brought to Naomi and Ruth, That wasn't the end of hope in this story. Hope from them starts then spreading outwards. Redemption brings more redemption. Did you clock verse 17? A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Is that name familiar? Well, maybe the next one will be, even if Jesse isn't the father of David. You see, right at the start of the book, of Ruth. We're told that we're in the time of the judges. It's set in a context and we've read the book of Judges and we've realised how bleak it is and we've realised how little hope there is for the nation and that's where Ruth starts. And by the end of it we've hit King David and what did King David do? He was Israel's greatest king. He was the one who brought about the golden age 
of Israel. And the story from the judges to David, what bridges it? It's God working at the margins. It's God working with Ruth and with Naomi and with Boaz. And their story and what God does to bring hope and redemption to them is the vehicle for hope and redemption for Israel. So you could say the real redeemer here. Is it, is it Boaz? Kind of. Is it Obed? Yeah, kind of. Is it David? Yeah, kind of. But all three of them are pointing us to a greater redeemer, a more ultimate redeemer. And then when you flick to the New Testament and you, you start reading the Gospels, what do you see? You see a genealogy. And you, you see familiar names, don't you? You see Boaz and you see Ruth honoured in the genealogies. And you see Obed and you see Jesse and you see David and you keep reading and you keep reading. And where does this family line take us? It takes us to Jesus, the one who is the redeemer in a greater sense than Boaz or Obed or David could ever be. The ultimate redeemer, the one who hope is truly founded. And so we read in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. All of us in bondage to sin, in bondage to the law, far from God. And the one who came, the one who used his power to overcome the darkness and set us free. The one who associated in a relationship with even sinners like us. And the one who paid the price for all our sins. That we might be freed. Jesus, our Redeemer. So this little redemption story that we've been looking at in these last few weeks became a piece of God's truly global work of redemption. The hope here has brought further hope. The redemption here has brought more redemption. And so as we look at our God stories from the margins, it's not just that God gives you a story. It's not just that God will do his work in your life, but it's that God will take that story and take what he's doing in you and weave it into his big story. That's what happens here. That's what happens with each one of us. Our story is brought into God's big story. Ruth is a story of hope, And it's a story of Hesed. It's a challenge to us to look to the margins and love those who are unloved. Notice those who are unnoticed. But it's also a bold declaration that there is hope. And when you hit a moment like I hit and you you can't see what might be and the future's out of view to you, a story like this tells you that's not the end. There is hope. God's got you. God has something for you. And if you feel at the margins and ignored and like you don't matter and no one cares, a story like this tells you it's not true. God's eyes are on you. God's heart is on you. God's sovereign activity is at work in your life. There is hope. Here's what I want to do then. I want to pray for you today, particularly if you're feeling this disconnect from hope. That I want us all together to sing that song that I referred to, that God is the way maker, the miracle worker, as a declaration that, that that is true, whatever our circumstances may be. So Luke, do you want to jump forward? Uh, can everyone stand up? And I'm going to pray.